0: You can be seated. Amen. Great to uh, sing praises to our Lord this morning. I want you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 7, which is a text that gives us cause for singing what we have just sung together. Mark chapter 7. We, in this chapter, have been looking at the theme of outsiders and insiders, I don't know about you, but I I can think of circumstances or settings in my life where uh, I have been, where I have felt like an outsider. Um, You kind of don't know the lingo. You kind of don't know the people. You don't know the town. Uh, Illustration, my wife's high school reunion. Okay? I am not typically an introvert. Okay? I'm... I, I like walking up to people. I grew up in a harborster, walking up to people. Can I help you? How can I help you? Like, I, I do that naturally. I don't know what it is about my wife's class reunion. That, like, totally freaks me out. So, I don't go anymore. <laughs> I said, honey, you can go reach those people, okay? I'll work in Washington, okay? Uh, I, I just... I I can't even explain why, but I just stand out of the side, realizing that everybody knows each other, everybody has history, and I'm just like standing to the side. I also am reminded of a couples conference that one of our elders sent us to probably 20 years ago, happened to be the last one that he sent us to, (laughs) was at a Christian retreat center. Everybody at this Christian Ridge Street Center had been coming there since the day they were married. And so the way they started the event was, okay, if you've been coming here for 30 years, why don't you stand up? And I am like shrinking into a hole because I know they're going to come to if it's your first time, right? And I felt like so, in that moment, so totally and utterly disconnected. I felt like an outsider. There are many things in life that can cause people to feel like outsiders. Issues of race, issues of affluence, issues of dress, issues of education, issues of athletic ability, issues of appearance. And I could go on and on and on. There are so many things in life that could cause us to wish that we were insiders when in fact we are outsiders. Well, in the text that we're talking about, Jesus is addressing this tension in the religious community of people that feel like outsiders or are actually told that they are outsiders and the insiders are explaining why they are the insiders, why with God they have a, a special blessing because of certain attributes, characteristics or blessings by birth. In Jesus' day, the religious community believed that external conformity, ritual rightly reserve, rightly observed, made you an insider. And the truth that Jesus was explaining repeatedly through the text was that your status, your blessings, do not make you more or less acceptable to God. They are utterly irrelevant. They make no difference in your standing before God, because we all come to God on the same basis. With God, being an outsider, lacking external credentials, does not make you unacceptable to God. But that's the message that people often hear, sense, or feel. The text that we move in today covers the story of two miracles, one is the miracle of the healing of a, of a young girl who is demon-possessed. The other is, is of a man who is deaf and mute. Okay, those two stories coupled together give us the heart of Christ tor- towards those who in this context were seen as outsiders. Okay, and what I want to, the title of my sermon is this. Jesus is the Savior of the world, which is casting the largest net possible. Whereas in the religious establishment of Christ's day, Jesus was the savior of people of a certain race who observed certain ritual standards. They were the insiders of that day, allegedly. Jesus comes to literally shatter that paradigm. I want to begin reading Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Did I ask you to turn there already? Did I? Okay. I couldn't remember if I did. Sorry. Sorry. All right, verse 24, let's begin reading. Beautiful text. It says, Jesus left that place, that is, the place he's leaving is the area of Galilee, Jewish uh, area, okay? Part of Israel. He left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. And all I want you to understand, just initially, Tyre is a Gentile province to the north and west of Galilee. Okay, so it is clearly a Gentile area where there are a lot of, for the Jews, outsiders. The text says he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman who remains unnamed in the text, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit, came and fell at his feet. Now listen to these credentials. She was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She and, Mark, and Matthew adds that she was a Canaanite. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus replied, First let the children eat all that they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread... And toss it to dogs. And that feels a little cutting, right? Like when you hear that, you're probably like, Jesus said that? Okay, I gotta give you context and you'll see exactly why he said it. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, the demon, gone. It's an amazing story. Not real long. It's not heavy with detail because it's being repeated for a Gentile audience, the recipients of the Gospel of Mark, with a very specific message to the disciples of Jesus who are with him and to the community of outsiders. So let's just look at this real quickly. So verse 24 tells us that Jesus is going into a Gentile area, and he is seeking. It becomes clear he's seeking a quiet place, getting away from the crowds in in, in around Galilee, his place of ministry. He goes to Syria Phoenicia to a city called Tyre. There he goes into a house, hoping for privacy. But here's what we're learning. Though Jesus has repeatedly said to people, keep it to yourself. The secret is getting out, right? So Jesus repeatedly does something, says to someone, shh. And they're like, what? (laughs) But eventually, the multitude of miracles starts to grow. And it's like when somebody tells you something. Recently, someone told me, hey, we're pregnant, but don't tell anybody. I don't know about you. I don't like me in that position. <laughs> My issue is gossip. Okay, <laughs> All right? So Jesus does a miracle and he says, Shh. and w- what's happening? Jesus is fulfilling his public ministry over the duration of time that the father has planned. And, and he's trying to give people instruction to keep the secret low key, but eventually it's going to come out and become public truth. Okay. In this context, this woman... Somehow the rumors of this Messiah have traveled throughout Galilee. Now into the Gentile territories around it. Jesus goes to the Gentile territories seeking a break. And when he gets to the house, in comes this woman who remains nameless. Here's what the text tells us. It tells us, number one, that she is, and these are the things that are against her. These are the things that to her are obvious, but that she is putting aside. She does not care. She's a woman. She is a Gentile. And she's a woman, in this case, who needs the assistance of a rabbi. And it would have been inappropriate in the culture for the woman to seek the help of a rabbi. Jesus entertains her and allows her to come into context. She is a Gentile, the gospel of Matthew chapter 15 has this same account. It says that she is a Canaanite. If you know anything about the larger Bible storyline, you know that the greatest opponent that Israel deals with are the Canaanites. That is a, a title for the pagan people that inhabited the land of promise. So strike two. Strike three. She, by virtue of her daughter's struggle, would be deemed unclean by the religious community. Remember, In the Gospel of John, when the man who was born blind is brought to Jesus, what do the disciples say? Who sinned? Who was unclean? This man or his parents? What were they seeking? A direct correlation between struggle and sin in someone's life. And Jesus is going to blow that myth apart. Okay, so she's got three strikes against her. But she has a desperate need. The text is clear. Her, not her daughter, but her little girl is in a difficult situation. The concept is that she is inseparable from this child. She has no clout or leverage. She does not come offering credentials, reasons why Jesus should help her. No cultural, no religious uh, uh, clout, no moral standing. If there ever was an outsider in the ministry of Christ, this woman would epitomize what the outsider was. Does that make sense? All right, so she's clearly... Not in, like the disciples aren't glad to see her. In fact, the text tells us that she requested boldly an undeserved favor. Lord, have mercy on me. You find that when you go back to Matthew 15 in this text. She comes pleading for help that she in no way believes that she deserves, but desperately needs. Is that not the cry of every repentant sinner? I need help and I don't deserve it. So I go to a merciful God who is full of grace and he pours out his blessing. That's the way it works. She does not demand. She pleads. And I think it's real important that you see that distinction here. Now, the disciples have something to say about this circumstance. Because the, the verbs in Mark and in Matthew all indicate that she is begging and pleading repeatedly there is a sense of desperation and finally hope in the presence of christ that the one who she has heard about might exercise his authority over the struggle that her daughter is facing and so she continues to plead in mark or in matthew 15 the disciples say do you hear her they they kept pleading send her away they found this woman's approach To be annoying, perhaps embarrassing, and at some level inappropriate. So the disciples, like the religious establishment that has been spoken to in Mark 7, have a verdict. Go, go, go. Chased away. No level of sensitivity to the deep desperation that is present in this woman's life. No connection to the fact this is her little girl. And they just, Lord, tell her to to go. I don't know exactly why, but I, I can only assume that the prejudices that the disciples have absorbed from their culture are at some level affecting their heart and they have no compassion to someone who is captivated by deep sorrow. Nothing moves. The the thing about that to me that's sad is they know that he can help her. And it just, it tells you how caught up in our own life, and our own circumstances, we are prone to be. That we are not moved by the trouble of others because we are so consumed with our own life and our own problems. May God help us. But Jesus is not subject to such struggles. While the disciples are nullifying all the teaching that Jesus has given, Jesus begins to move in this woman's direction. His reply to her, however, is interesting. Right? Because this is where the awkward part comes up, verse 27. And, and one little side note that you have to be aware of is that to the Jews... Of Christ's day that had perverted the system, had 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 twisted religion into ritual, into a focus on externals. Right to them, the Gentiles were, and they were considered dogs. Okay, and you got to let that settle in. I want to tell you something. I, I recently read a book called *The Great Migration*, called *Under Other Suns*. Okay, it's a, it's the story of the migration of people post-Civil War from the South to the North. Okay, when you start reading about Jim Crow laws in the South, okay, that mindset of the age and time of Jesus was clearly exemplified in the South of America post-Civil War. Okay, the segregation, all of the, the lynching, all of the things that happened were typical, and it happened amongst believers. So so that you don't look at this and say, whoa, so long ago. No, part of our history, part of the American life. Something that I think it's helpful if you're aware of it. For the disciples, Jesus sees what's happening, and he says to her, let the children eat what they want. For it is not appropriate, it's not right, it's not proper protocol to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It's not, I'll paraphrase, it's not right to take the presence and power of the Messiah and unleash it on Gentiles. Now Jesus is, you're going to find very clearly where he's coming from with this. But it's an awkward off-putting statement at first, isn't it? The word that's used here for dogs is not the typical word that's used as you read through the Gospels in the New Testament. The word that's used here is puppies or household pets. Not the large dogs that roam the street in Middle Eastern culture still present today. When I was in India, we saw packs of dogs that they're scavengers. They're not friendly. It's not like, hey, come here, I want to rescue you and take you home. It's not that kind of dog. This is this is the, the household pet that Jesus references and all Jesus is saying is this, children deserve better treatment than pets. Okay, now, you, you may find that offensive, okay? But that's what Jesus is saying. There is some degree of priority that Jesus is acknowledging. Okay, so his, his response has to do with, and, and where do you, as a Gentile woman, come off with this approach? This bold request. Okay, now Jesus, I think, is saying this for the benefit of the disciples. Okay, because there is no way you can look at the life of Christ and come away from this scenario with a profoundly negative interpretation because his heart is constantly reaching out, Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, right? You, On and on and on. It is the outsider that Christ reaches to and brings them to the inside. And that is clearly his aim in this context. So notice what it says. Verse 28, her faith-exposing word. Lord, she replied, even the pets under the table eat the children's crumbs. Okay, now here, here's, here's all that is. That is an expression of profound and deep faith on the part of this person. Yes, Lord. And Jesus says it. When you go back to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, I came in this context, I came for the lost house of Israel. Now, it's clear in any Old Testament statement that the big picture that Jesus Christ has come to pursue is the world. He starts with Israel first. And I think that's the indication here. First, let the children eat all they want. There is a a chronological fulfillment of Christ's prophecies. He comes as a Jewish Messiah, not for Jewish people only or exclusively. He comes as a Jewish Messiah for the saving of the world. Okay? So he comes to those that think they're insiders, but his mission clearly stated from the Old Testament is the nations, right? Now I'm gonna give you one Old Testament text that helps you understand that when Christ comes, the fulfillment of promises to Abraham that the target audience is not Israel, it's the nations, right? God says to Abraham, Abraham, I've chosen you. I'm gonna give you land, seed, and blessing. Ultimately, so that, In you, Abraham, and in your offspring, ultimately Jesus, all nations of the earth will be what? Blessed. Blessed. Okay, so Jesus is the Savior in the line of Abraham, coming to fulfill the mission that was given to Abraham, and that was to be a blessing to the nations. So be very careful. If you get hyped up on Zionism, you know, all about Israel. God's purpose through Israel was that they would be a light to the nations. The end game of the calling of Christ is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what Jesus is saying to her is, yes, I have come to save and deliver and heal and free. My mission starts with Israel. Israel. And goes to the nations. He's giving a nod to that truth. He is in no way pushing her away. He's clarifying. And she also brings clarity, right? Cause she says, yes, Lord, that's true. The children at the table should eat first. But those crumbs that fall to the floor, that's all I'm asking for. I know I'm not on the inside. I'm, I'm an outsider. But by faith, I want to come to the inside. And when she comes to Christ, there is this very overt, strong, clear, discernible, Sandy Wagner's word, palpable, hope that she has. That the one that she has heard about, the Messiah that went to Galilee to help in Israel, can also make a difference in her life. And she is 100% spot on. In her understanding of the saying of Christ, she's like, Lord, you're right. Israel in your coming has a priority, but your mission is bigger. Your mission is global. It's multinational. And so she pleads and Jesus replies and, and, and she comes with a faith exposing word. And it's interesting when you, when you go to verse 29. Okay, she says in verse 28, even the dogs under the table get the blessings of the children. It says, then he, Jesus, told her, for such a reply, you may go. Here's the key. He is not doing what the disciples wanted. Send her away. Get rid of the annoyance. He's saying for such a reply, and the word reply literally means for such a word. The idea is a saying, a discerning understanding of the power of this moment. She expressed in that moment a faith, and in her coming and begging, she's expressing what we would call faith. Faith is this, it is the complete recognition that I am desperately in need of saving and of rescue, but can make no contribution to my rescue. See, that's the heart of faith, right? When I come to a place where I realize that I am a sinner deserving justly of God's judgment, but in Christ there's hope, and I cry out to him and I say, Jesus, save me, rescue me, deliver me, cleanse me. He responds to that call of faith. And he acts In behalf of and in regard to her request for deliverance of her daughter from demonic possession. He grants her that wish because of her word. Yes, Lord. But the blessings come to us also. That's what your word teaches. The Bible says she went home, verse 30. And found her child lying on the bed. And the demon gone. Her response to Christ is the response of a true disciple, isn't it? It is an immediate and full obedience. Here's how you know if you're a disciple of Christ. Your response to his word is full and immediate. Jesus says, go, your child is healed. Her response, she stops begging. She believes that it's done and moves towards her child to find, in fact, that it is done. Okay, the other thing I want you to notice is in the modern world when it comes to demonic things and influences, it's amazing the structures that people have put together to make this act so complicated, formulaic. The text here is simple. Ask in faith for God to work. You may not even know the nature of the situation that is being dealt with, but ask God. And this text tells me That the work of God is conditional upon the faith of his people. So when God puts a circumstance in front of you where you want to see him work, great faith. The key to God's work in our lives is our faith. May God help us when we face circumstances like hers to be people of great faith. Now, what is... what is? What is the statement of this section? Okay, I think it's this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. The disciples thought he was the Savior of Israel. Send her away. Jesus rescues her. And I think the new theology, the new truth that is now clarified is, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost among the nations. That's the broader reach of the work of Christ that is alluded to here. Okay, let's look then at this next text. And this one I'm just going to read through quickly and try to give us just a brief understanding and then draw this to a conclusion. Okay, the Savior and a deaf-mute man. So the text says, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. So this event happens, rest is acquired, uh, reprieve at some level, strengthening and moving now back into ministry. He left the vicinity of Tyre and went towards Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. Now, you all are familiar with the fact that the word deca, we use the word, we, we get the word decade from that, right? And that would mean ten. Okay, so a decade's 10 years. Polis in Greek means city. So Decapolis is a region with, can you do this? 10 cities, okay? It is clearly known to be a Gentile region. So Jesus has moved away from this discussion with the Pharisees about clean and unclean insiders and outsiders, and he is now moving in the realm of the outsiders. He's demonstrating what he's been teaching That your credentials by birth and by religious activity are not what bring you in favor with God. And I'll prove it to you. Let's go to Tyre and rescue someone there. Let's go to Decapolis and rescue someone there. So that you will know that I have come to be a savior for the world. I've come to fulfill the promises that were made to Abraham. Which includes not simply Jews. But a much broader audience from among the nations. So verse 31, he left that vicinity, went to Decapolis, verse 32, there are some people, and this is interesting, previous text is one person, who comes in desperation to seek a favor for her little girl. In this context, there is a group of people, and we know that Jesus has been in Decapolis already, so his reputation is present His capacity to heal and to live, deliver and change. It's already a well-known fact in the area of Decapolis. So the text says, some people brought to him a deaf man who could hardly speak. And they begged Jesus, same word as what is described of the woman. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Now, what do they know? Here's what they know. They've watched Christ touch people and bring change in that individual's life. That's what they know. And you can read through the gospel and you can find those stories recurring of Christ working and and bringing deliverance in the lives of people who thought they were captive, right? And there's always this sense of hope that's building, that life can be different and that things can change. So they begged Jesus for a merciful favor, an undeserved blessing. That's the idea here. And verse 33 is fascinating. It says, he, Jesus, took this needy man aside. Now, I just, I'm just going to say this. When Christ is doing miracles, there is no theater. He doesn't have a band playing. Okay, it doesn't set a context. Because it doesn't need one. And they know it. Their request is, Lord, if you touch him, we know what will happen. That's powerful. So he took him away from the crowd. Very interesting statements. He put his fingers into the man's ears. He spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a groan, a deep sigh. And you'll find this. As Christ encounters the brokenness that people are dealing with, there is a deep connection and understanding on his part, probably in anticipation of what the cost of sin will be on Calvary's cross. And he, he, he sighs, he groans, he feels, he's associated, not distant to our pain. But he allows it to come and settle on him. To the degree that he is emotionally affected. Physiologically affected. By our struggle. I think it's why Isaiah 53 says he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He associated so deeply. What? What a savior. I think... What's going on in these touches is simply this. And you you can go and you can draft all kinds of contrived thoughts from this text. I'm going to tell you they're not in the text. You have to import them to the text. Okay, what I do know is this. Jesus in those things is touching the area of need and is assuring the man that any change that comes came from him. He wants that man To walk out of that house delivered, knowing that his deliverance is directly associated to the person and work of Jesus. Because that is the ground of hope. Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with him will bring transformation to your life. So verses 36 and 37. It says, (laughs) I just love this. Jesus said to them, shh. You're like, please can we like just explode? Can we just let the secret out? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is controlling the timetable of his life so that at the Father's appointed time, when all of the miracles that need to be done have been done, when all the teaching that needs to be done has been done, when all the work amongst the disciples has been completed. Then he will say, Father, not my will. Yours be done. And the Father's will and the the, the ultimate secret is that Jesus had not come to do miracles. So what is he saying? Don't make much of that. He said that to the disciples, didn't he? They come back from their journey, the 70, right? And Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What does Jesus say? Shh. Don't rejoice in that. Because that is simply, that isn't, that's an appetizer. That's not the steak. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that temporary deliverance came. Rejoice that eternal deliverance is typified and anticipated in those temporal miracles. Those miracles, that inbreaking of the kingdom, points to the greater work of Christ, which is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that God is making for himself from among the nations, Revelation 5 says, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is saving and he is redeeming. Now, when you come to the end of this text, he says to them, don't tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. It's kind of like, Hey, we're pregnant. And I'm like, oh. I mean, I, I usually tell my wife, okay? It's just, this is hard to keep stuff. Certain things, they're just, they need to be said, okay? Here's what it says. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. Now, here's what I want you to see. The people overwhelmed with amazement are outsiders or insiders? What are they? Say it louder, I can't hear you. Know. They're outsiders. They live in Decapolis. They see in this work of Christ the clear, unadulterated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And Gentiles, dogs. To the ancient world, not to me, not to you, but to the ancient Jewish leadership, the religious leadership perverted and distracted by rituals and externals, obsessed with how they look to everybody else, but not to God. Gentiles, not them. Gentiles say he makes the deaf hear and he makes the mute speak like, this is not containable. Why? They saw a connection between what had just happened and what Isaiah 35 says. and So I have to read Isaiah 35. It says this. Be strong. Don't fear. Your God will come. Here's the ominous side. He will come with divine retribution, which is justice to save you, then, when he comes with divine retribution, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. That's the connection. But the broader context of what they say is not stated. He comes with divine retribution. He comes to bring justice for all the brokenness. I want to tell you something. You and I live in a fallen world. When we see injustice, we Long to see it settled. That is the most natural human longing. When someone you love has been injured, wounded, abused, you want justice. And Jesus came not to say to sinners, it's okay, it's okay, I'll just forgive you, at will, I'll just forgive you. No. He came with divine retribution, with just verdicts. Tim Keller summarizes this text. God in this text has come as promised, but not as expected. Does that make sense? He has come as promised, but not as expected. Why? Because what are the disciples wanting? Jesus, go to Jerusalem, get on your donkey, be a king. He did not come to be a king. And if you think he came to be a king, you misunderstand the whole story. God has come as promised but not as expected in Jesus, the Savior of the world. God has come to save us. Folks, as you read this story of Jesus reaching out to Gentiles, if you are not Jewish, they are the beginning of your hope. That woman's deliverance by simple, total reliance on God is a picture of your faith in Christ. And the deliverance of this Gentile man who is deaf and blind with the touch of Christ is to say, Jesus Christ has come to deliver not just Jews, but us. Isaiah says he has come with divine retribution or judgment, but Jesus, when he comes, isn't smiting people. He has no sword in his first coming. He is not taking over. He is giving it away. He is not taking the world over. Instead, he is serving it. So where is the divine retribution? Here's the answer that Tim Keller gives. Jesus did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. On the cross, he identifies with us totally and completely. Here's what the Bible says, and this I'm ad-libbing here. Hebrews says he was numbered among sinners, though not one. He was counted as a rebel, but never sinned. So, do you, you, you start to see the connection? He comes with divine retribution. Who does that fall on, we ask? On him. On him. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the truth that ties the whole Bible together. That yes, there is sin. And yes, Tim Hoff deserves the judgment of God justly. But Christ came to bear what I deserve. And to offer me the healing that I so desperately need. On the cross, God's Son is discarded, cast from the table, becomes an outsider so that rebels can be adopted and brought in. He was counted with sinners so that we could be counted righteous. The Son of God became a cursed dog so that we could be sons and daughters. At his table. And because Jesus Christ identified with us. We can approach him. The son became despised. So that we could be brought to the table. He was silent. So that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. You see the Christocentricness of these accounts. He becomes the outcast so that we sit at the table. He is silent in front of Pilate so that in his death, I could be freed to praise him. Isn't that? Here's what I I thought to myself. I said, that's Christmas. He comes with divine retribution to be born on himself, not to smite people. There's part of you that's saying, yeah, but I want them to smite people. I want justice. That's the human heart. We all have neighbors and in-laws, right? (laughs) I'm blessed with awesome in-laws. Mom and dad, leave I love you, okay? They're watching, I'm sure. And my phone, I think, is ringing. (laughs) Okay, we want the justice. Folks, listen, be careful. When you want justice at an obsessed level, really at any level because if God gives you what you deserve you were separated from him forever in hell but because the father lays on the son what I deserve I'm free by his touch by his taking on flesh there is hope for someone like me So how do we respond? Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. I recently offended someone in a service. And in that service, I know I said that we are all sinners, including me. But when your heart's proud, you know what you hear? You just judged me. Well, no, I just associated with you. I just declared what makes us commonly one, and that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And secondly, for those of us who have struggled, for those of us who are profoundly aware of our sinfulness, don't beat yourself up so bad that you gut the cross of its saving power. Look we all fail. We all break. We all sin. We all struggle. Don't pummel yourself. Don't punish yourself. Why? Because the punishment that you deserve. Is already done. It fell on Christ. And all of your. Self. Mutilation And. Penances and sacramental acts got the gospel. They make it false for you. Knowing that you are a sinner for whom Christ died makes this truth come clear in a life altering and life changing way. As we rightly discern who Jesus is, the Savior of the world. Our lives are changed. And we realize that the secret is out. And that I live in a world where people desperately need to hear the truth that was shared with this woman. And with this man. And through the disciples to the nations. So maybe you're here this morning. Well, not maybe you're here. That's kind of weird, right? Maybe you've come this morning. And the gospel just hasn't clicked. The nature of Christ's work standing in your place is not, the penny hasn't dropped. Maybe today God is making it clear. Maybe today you're understanding that Christ on Calvary's cross stood in my place and took the judgment of God that I deserve for my saving. And if I will simply come to him saying, Jesus, a sinner in need of grace. That's all I got. An ultimate outsider who would love to be an insider, but can't get himself there. Save me. Cleanse me. Bring me to your table. Father, I pray this morning that if someone is here who has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Lord, I pray that right now, in the quietness of their heart, sitting at home in front of a computer or a TV, they might say, Oh Lord, how I have misunderstood your work and your coming. But today I believe that you are the Savior of the world, including me. And today I acknowledge I am a sinner in need of your grace. Save me. Cleanse me. Forgive me through the work of your cross, by your shed blood. And Lord, for everyone in this room who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, Lord, may we through this text taste again and again and again. May we in this Christmas season... Taste again and have this praise on our lips. Jesus is my savior. And Jesus is the savior of the world. God, forgive our silence. Let us become like those who could not contain the message that was poured into their vessel. And help us to be people that take the secret out to the world that we live in, to those that we rub shoulders with, to our family. You are the Savior of the world. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Our tongues have been freed. Our hearts have been filled by your Spirit to sing your praise. So Lord, let us go this morning singing and praising the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all as you go.